the reason I started this podcast uh, three or four years ago was because I needed to do a couple of things. One, to talk to attorneys, vendors, people I could do business with to get business, lead generate. But two, also was to learn, learn how to be better at my craft, how to differentiate myself from the other uh, agents in the business I was competing with. And the way to learn is by talking to people actually doing things and share with you their experiences, their success, and what they do to be productive. Uh, a year, year and a half ago, I think exactly how long ago it was, uh, at the time I came across a young guy who at the time was working for the for Philadelphia, for the court system, inside is what we call a probate attorney, different terminology that we'll talk about that. And was nice to let me uh, interview him on the show back then. He since has continued to grow as attorney and today is a, um, uh, I guess the term would be um, in private practice, right? That you're separate from the court system. You uh, uh, left that and now our private attorney in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania or the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania. I'll let him tell you all that. But that's what we're doing this here is to learn how to be better at our craft. Andre, this year, thank you so much for coming back to us. Appreciate it. Bill, it is always a pleasure to be on your show. I will always make time for you. I think you do a public service and um, and I in the tradition of continuing my public service, I, I enjoy participating. Thanks, but you left out that I'm good looking and charming, but I'll look over like that. For you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so uh, they get the path right. When I talked to you previously, you worked for the court system, but your title there was what? I was a judicial law clerk, so I uh, I was a clerk. So I was in-house counsel for a judge, essentially, was my role. As a, as a lay person, when we hear the term clerk, like somebody clerk for the Supreme Court justice, they're not a clerk like in the... Uh, frontline employee of an administrative office who is at the front desk uh, with the desk and pens and such. Clerk in the legal sense normally means an attorney who's assigned to a particular judge. In this case, you were an attorney at the time practicing for the, the for Philadelphia's court system and working for one particular judge or multiple judges. So I had the distinct pleasure of working for multiple judges, and that was a unique position. Typically, uh, clerks only are with, uh, it's a very um, close relationship. You are um drafting their opinions you you um get the inside fastball for all for everyone who plays baseball so to speak on how the judge thinks what they what they're looking for and so you typically only work for one judge but in, um one of i had worked for two judges because one was retiring and so they were winding down so i just happened to you know be on board and helping out both judges while i was there um and it was a fantastic experience both for me as an attorney um but then also me interpersonally to see how two judges are like polar opposite people and how they approach the law very differently and so two things we all think about as as non-attorneys is one that the guy who's the or guy or gal who's the clerk today who's only the clerk today or in los angeles we call them probate attorneys is is perhaps tomorrow the practicing attorney or down the road perhaps the judge in that same court because they've really learned the procedures they learned the processes and such and so really there are people you want to meet number one number two they see so many cases in a compressed period of time in a week they see what people see in a year in a month they see what a probate might see in a lifetime so describe a little bit for us how being you know inside the the courtroom or behind the scenes so to speak helped prepare you to be a private practice attorney. I, I, Bill, you hit the nail right on the head. We In that year that I, I had clerked, I, I um, roughly around five or 600 cases we disposed of. And a case can be anything from in, in 
Pennsylvania and Philadelphia specifically, the Orphan's Court, a probate court, handles all estate wills and trust matters. It has exclusive jurisdiction. So it's the only court that can hear um, most of those cases. And so anything from uh, a person passing away and them contesting or challenging a will, which is a will contest, to uh, modifying or altering the terms of a trust, which is trust modification, we can see anything that runs the gambit in any corner of that law. And for me, as a as an attorney, you know, I, I was thrown, you know, all types of varying matters every single day and, and seeing, you know, all of these different things. And I, I, I let's say I know nothing about this area of the law. I have to come to speed very quickly. So you, you covered a lot. Let me do some quick housekeeping. This is probate weekly. You can register to come in live on the Zoom call and ask questions live of our guests. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern at probateweekly.com. We do record it and put it on social media. You can see past episodes at episodes.probateweekly.com. And if you're watching on the live streams, YouTube or Facebook or LinkedIn while we're live, you can ask questions. And I check the I check the comment box there regularly, or if it's after hours, we'll come back and get that. So a couple of things you hit on. Number one, you were just in your courtrooms that you're responsible for, you manage 500 cases a year. Now, let me ask you a question. I know the answer in LA, what does the average attorney, how many probate cases does they, if I took all the probate cases divided by the number of attorneys, how many does the average handle in a year? It, it, I would, I guess that that um, varies by jurisdiction. So Philadelphia, 2 million people, a little over 2 million people. I would say all the probate cases, maybe 2,000, 2,500 uh, filed here. You know, five judges, you, you are sitting judges. So you can do that math on how that kind of sort of breaks down five, 600 a judge. Um, that's about just in Philadelphia County, you know, places like New York where there's eight, nine million people, um, death and taxes, right? Everybody who passes away is supposed to have a probated estate, right? You're every, whether or not there's a will or not a will, every single person who passes away, you're supposed to go and, and open or administer the, that deceased person's estate. So a couple of things that are packed. I mean, you're such a source of information. I don't think you realize it. So it's lay people. I mean, if you're a guy from the planet Krypton trying to explain to mere mortals how he can fly and how he can jump in the probate space. So number one, biggest misconception of probate is if you have a will, you avoid probate. It might be true in certain things in certain states, but generally speaking, certainly California, and in most states, generally speaking, the will is probated or the will is executed in probate court, not avoiding probate court. It just gives the rules based on the decedent's wishes rather than the law based on the state. So that's an important misconception that most customers have. You also mentioned 500 cases a month. You know, in LA, for example, if I download the 500 cases and sort by attorneys, I get 250 different attorneys, which means the average attorney, I'm sorry, in a year, if I take the 6,000 divided by, I'll get 3,000 attorneys, which means the average attorney does two cases a year. You do 500 in a month as a as a judicial clerk in, in, in a year, in the entire year. If I could do 500 a month, oh. I would never leave. I'd work. Well, they would chain me to my desk. You know what I mean? No, I, in, it's it's for the year. I would say it was somewhere, but the judges dispose of dispose of on so 500 cases. Okay, and dispose means get rid of. They either you know rule on it or or they deny it or whatever. Not continued. There comes to some resolution is disposition yeah. of the case, and that's what they. That's what the the judges are. When you go there, you realize they're. You wonder why are they move it so hard? Like, what is it? Were they motivated by? They track their dispositions. There's a report put out in California every year of the, of the disposition rate, how many are disposed of, more or less than last year by court, by judge. And so that's the term they use as disposition. Um, okay. 
And he also mentioned the term orphan's court. Now, again, he's in Philadelphia. Here in LA, we use a probate court. It's a little bit of a misnomer because in LA, for example, in probate court, we handle conservatorships, we handle guardianships, we handle probate, we also handle trust and trust litigation. People often say, often say, well, if you have a trust, you avoid litigation. No, you probably will, you more likely will, but very commonly trusts are litigated and they're here in LA or in California probate court. In Philadelphia, it's orphan's court, it's the name they use for it. And all these types of cases are handled in what they call orphan's court, but in reality, it's just the name of the division that handles multiple things. Same is true in most other states, so good information. Okay. Yeah, and New York, just for just for a point of fun and for everybody's information, New York, it's called surrogate's court. So right? I was gonna say surrogate's court, uh, which has all the same things. Who's a surrogate? I don't mean. Um, it's essentially the concept is there's one court system in your trial system that is the it's exclusive jurisdiction. It's the place where you go to handle estate matters. So in every jurisdiction, they we we title it funny things and different names, but the concept is it, that's the court that has the power to adjudicate to deal with or handle the the estate trust wills matters. And again, those watching, part of why we do this is we want to learn the terminology and know it in different areas. Because when you have a customer, let's say that has a probate in LA, and they also maybe own a piece of property in Pennsylvania or Philadelphia, they may not need to have a sub a um, a uh, what's the before like a sub escrow or sub probate. Uh, we call it in, in Los Angeles, different term, but it's not handled in probate court in Philadelphia. It's handled in orphans court. You say that term to the Philadelphia attorney, they're going to treat you different than you call probate court. They're going to go, what, "What are you talking about?" Or maybe they know, but they're not going to be as aware. So, how did you end up in, of all things, as a probate clerk versus? all the types of law. When, when people think of attorneys, you watch movies, TV, I've never seen, maybe you have, I've never seen a probate specific attorney other than one movie I, I, that I would mention. But generally speaking, it's, it's something is criminal or it's major corporate, you know, acquisitions, mergers. How did you end up in probate court? So it, it completely on accident. So my second year of law school, I uh, externed, meaning I worked for a judge who happened to be in, the, in in Montgomery County, which is right outside of Philadelphia, their probate court system. I was enamored and I, I really appreciate, like I met this woman once and I was like, oh my God, I just want to be near her. I want to learn from her. I wanted to like accept. So, and then I reached out independently and she agreed to take me on and she just so happened to be in probate court. She's um, certain judges in, in Pennsylvania, you're elected a judge. So when you run to be a judge in Pennsylvania, you got to get on the ballot, you got to, you know, campaign and then you're elected. And then you're appointed, you don't, you don't run for a criminal seat judge or a civil seat judge, you just run for judge. And typically the administrative judge or the head judge or the per person in charge of that court would, or that, that um, judicial circuit would, it would dictate or tell each judge which part they're sitting in. So you could be, once you're elected judge, you could do civil your entire life, and all of a sudden you're now sitting in orphans court. Um, more often than not, the administrative judges try to match apples and apples and oranges and oranges. If you're, you know, are the most famous criminal litigator in Pennsylvania and you get elected judge, chances are you'll be sitting in, in the criminal part. But for the average Joe who gets elected, um, it's a, it's a you know, roll of the dice. So I worked with a woman in, in I worked for a woman in orphans court in, and I fell in love with the practice. It is both transactional, meaning that we sit, I sit with people and, and I write their will. I they give me money and I give them a document. That's the transaction. And then it is also litigation. Um, I can go to court and my client can say, you know, this will is a product of undue influence or fraud. We want to challenge it. Then I will litigate. I will go to court and say that 
I, judge, I need an order from you saying X, Y, and Z. So it's one of the only areas of the law that has both of that transaction and that litigation. So, you know, and then on top of that, here's the kicker, the fun part, it's uh, low stakes. Another area of the law, I did a little bit of crim, you know, my first case when I was barred was a, a gun possession case. And there's a lot of human misery element. There's a lot of um, just sadness. There's a lot of you, you, high stakes, right? If I get it wrong, someone's going to lose their freedom. Um, in probate and orphans court in this system, a lot of the effects and things that happen are after the fact. Money sitting in escrow, somebody's passed away, right? So uh, if you mess something up, you can, you know, more often than not, you, you can rewind it, redo it. Um, the stakes are a little lower than if criminal court, I mess it up, someone's, someone's going to prison. So a couple of things, when you said that you used the word when I was first barred, that means admitted to the bar, not barred from, but it means he got into the bar, just say from a terminology point of view. And also just notice um, uh, how important mentorship is, particularly in law. You're always going to, I find that very common, unlike any other industry where somebody either got into law and or a specialty because of somebody in a relationship that inspired them along the way. You hear those stories uh, all the time from attorneys. It's just uh, part of the business. Um, and then the other thing I would say to go back to, I mean, you're just, you're just so full of information. You mean realize it. Um, you talked about the head uh, judge in LA County. I never, remember when COVID hit. And, you know, in general, I'm not very much respectful of government officials. There's a general rule. It seems like things in LA just don't get done well between the trash and the roads and such. The judge who runs the court in LA was just a stone assassin. He was just so on his game. And because I, and again, I encourage any realtor who's serious about learning the probate business, join your local bar as an affiliate if they allow you to. Some do, most do, some don't. And if you get a chance to go online or go in person and see the head judge for the court in LA County, uh, in our case, wow, is that an impressive guy? I even know what to say. Just otherworldly smart and command of, because he talked about how many different, I didn't think about all the divisions, all the courts and all the things these, and, and understand how they move people around to try to match them up. Um, so definitely if you have a chance uh, to, to meet or hear the head judge in your county, that guy is going to be one of the best attorneys you're ever going to hear. And definitely if you want to learn the business, that's a guy that you want to get a chance to hear from. Andrew, I would imagine that if to use your baseball analogy, you would be like the first round draft pick coming out of uh, the uh, the Orchids yeah. Court into a probate um, as a business person. I, I can say that as a professional. Now, maybe you have to learn the business of getting customers to choose you or to sign up with you or pay you. That's a business thing. But from a technical point, I would think you'd be like the all-star first round draft pick. Yeah, but of of no fault of my own, not because I am particularly skilled or or a good attorney or you're going to get better results from me by by happenstance, right? Because I worked for the judges, I know what they're looking for, right? Okay, so if, just just absorb it. Okay, yeah, maybe still. Yeah, but like in, in that sense, so if if the chances are in in Philadelphia County, there's a um, it's usually a lottery system on on who you get appointed to. But could you imagine if I'm your attorney that you hire and you go before one of the judges that I worked for, right? There's they're they're gonna you know the 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 odds are in your favor right not not necessarily because i'm good but that those judges know that they've trained me they they've taught me right they've showed me what they're looking for and i'm going to file and do things according to what i think they're looking for so right. chances are more likely than not you're gonna the outcome is going to be more favorable for you right I so know. that is again of no no happenstance of my skill that i'm the number one draft pick but just by that 
you know, law firms, especially big law law firms, they like to hire clerks because number one, it's like, you know, the shiny, they get to show it off. I got this, this judge's clerk, but additionally, they know their clients fare just a, a tad bit better. If it's 50, 50, the feather oh, sure. goes on that scale, just a little bit more. If, if I appear before the judge I work for. And I think a customer who, who understands that experience uh, would appreciate that and choose you versus somebody else. It's just a natural, look, I've been in uh, LA County court, you know, in front of a couple of judges a few times. And when they recognize me and I like to think I do a good job, it's a whole different experience. And the guy comes in and doesn't follow the rules in interrupts the judge argues with the judge. Like, you know, I mean, I've been in court where the guy argues with the judge. And I just take a couple of steps away from like, you're like, I don't know this guy. We didn't come up together. You know, I said hi to him on the way in, but we're just being polite here. I don't know the guy. You know, because you don't argue, you don't rule one, don't argue with a judge. Ask questions, apologize, ask permission. Please, thank you, Your Honor. Don't argue with a judge. Just rule one on that one. Um, so so let's talk about um if I was a real estate agent in Philadelphia, you'd be my you'd be my new best friend. Um, uh, where is your practice headed now? What do you, what's your plan? Where are you going to be a year from now? Where do you want to be so five years from now? I have, I've actually accepted a position recently with a company called EP wealth, which is based in actually California. Right. It's a financial advising firm. So I'm an in-house attorney now for them, um, advising in their state wills and trust department. So it's a RIA, which is a, um, it's a, it's a fiduciary kind of investment advisory firm. Um, so they don't bill or don't collect money from, uh, how they churn or or they don't get money from selling uh um stocks and bonds on behalf of customers they get money right. from from doing a good job the more money they make for the clients the more money they make for themselves they're considered fiduciaries so we are part i work in-house for them on some of their estate making sure all of the matters are are, are kind of tied up and this is a new job just started it recently so i'm excited congratulations, to see congratulations. Um, do you do they do professional fiduciary work? Do they act, act as fiduciaries in assets, real estate, and those kinds of things in the, in the handling of states? They, they do, they do. And to everyone listening out here, one of the things that I'm learning now is the how connectors are important, right? I, you know, I feel they have a lot of opportunity to connect. And you know, all my a lot of the clients are like looking for people, and I'm in a position because of of the fiduciary and also the trusted relationship to refer them, right? And I'm going to ref refer the clients that I've now have a wide access to, to the people who are in my network that I know and that I know good do good work, right? So when I when that client's like, oh, I need a realist, you know, we, we got to sell this property because it's messing up our trust or, or all these other reasons, I'm like, oh, yep, I got a guy. I know a guy. And and it's because I've maintained a good relationship. I know that they're, I can put my reputation in their hands because they're going to value my customer and, and do right by them. So I, in this position, unlike my other one, I, I see the value in networks and 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 having um, people that you work with. It's so very important. Now, the company you, you said you mentioned is based in California, though I think you do business in other states. Uh, you're in in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. Um, how important is a specialist in particular counties within the state? Meaning, I'm an attorney in Pennsylvania, but I'm in Harrisburg or I'm in Pittsburgh. How different is that if you're giving somebody to do work, whether it be maybe not full on litigation, but contesting, objection, and such in in orphans court? So, in, in when you think about your attorneys and the rules that they're bound by, 
there's the rule of professional conduct, right? So like my rules of ethics, I have to, if if one of the ones that everybody knows, if they make a, a, a offer to my client, I have to verbally tell my client about that offer. I can't decide that it's a bad offer. I'm just not gonna tell my client. That's one of the big rules of ethics, but there's a whole list of them that we're under. Then there's the, the Pennsylvania rules of civil procedure, right? So these are the rules of how all cases should be handled. Then there are the local rules, right? With the, which are jurisdiction or, or county dependent. Each local rule is different. So there's some counties in Pennsylvania, no e-filing, no online filing. You want to probate a will, you got to walk into that office and physically hand them that document. Philadelphia is one of the counties that that has e-filing. I want to file, I want to probate a will in, in Philadelphia. I can file it online. I never have to leave my house, right? And just right then, I've shown you a difference in a local rule that affects a practice. I don't got to get in my car. I don't got to drive. I don't got to put gas in, so on and so forth, right? So local rules are just one of the four or five different rules that attorneys have to like make sure we fit that square hole into the round peg yeah and i think that's also true california we have we've we've probate code for the state of california and then each county has its own rules and in la county you have to e-file unless you're the petitioner right they make an exception for individual people if you're an attorney or a service you have to e-file only they won't take it otherwise and like I say other counties don't even e-file they you come in but those same other counties when you get your order, when you get the judge approves your order, you hand them the form and they, they sign it right there in LA. Like it's like a week to get the, the order signed. So they're all different. And I think it's important. So in your practice now, are you you know looking to meet attorneys in different counties as well in the states that you work in? Because you used to only work in Philadelphia. Now I imagine you occasionally you got to find somebody in Pittsburgh or something, right? Well, I'm the I'm the resident Pennsylvania expert, right? While I do work with clients in other states, and I I do have to um uh I'm like in-house counsel advising from that perspective, um and and also you know there we have a vast network and all of my you know I'm not the first one at this so to speak, but but yes I I am developing relationships with um people across across America because our clients are across America. Well, um so uh, in the course of your business. I, I don't again know as much about orphans court in Philadelphia, but in LA, a, about 10% of cases need, if they're selling real estate, court confirmations, a process where certain papers are filed with a court, judge has to review them. Is that is there such a process like that in Philadelphia where some minority cases or contested cases need to be approved by the court? And is there an overbidding or what does that look like? So there is a, it's about, about liability, right? Um, and, and also about paying taxes. Everybody, it's always about paying taxes. Um, you have not in, in Pennsylvania, the, the state taxes do, and California doesn't have one, just for everyone listening, they do not charge an inheritance or state tax. Pennsylvania does. It's one of the last five jurisdictions in America that still charges what's called an inheritance tax. If you leave money to someone, they, they have to pay tax on the money that they receive. In California, that's not the case. There's no state yeah. tax in California. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in Pennsylvania, you have nine months until the decedent after this person died to file their inheritance tax return. Um, and that is one of those like hard and fast. Nine, after nine months, you start accruing, uh, accruing free fees and all these other uh, uh, things start happening. If you probated a will nine months after that, the death certificate's issued. You, if there's no inheritance tax filed, um, the Department of Revenue in Pennsylvania starts, you know, looking and seeing what's going on. And one of the things the court or, or judge will do is is acknowledge that remove your liability um, for some of those fees and, and other things. Is there cases where when they want to sell property, they need the judge to approve that? Yeah, yes. Uh, if, if in contested matters unequivocally, um, also bond, 
Occasionally, if you if somebody passes away without a will and you become an administrator in Pennsylvania, there is there is a, a decision to be made by the register of wills whether or not they're going to require a bond on your administration. And if they require a bond on your administration, then you need approval to sell property. Um, and it's all about how risky. Um, like if they have a $10 million estate, if you put file the inventory $10 million, they're going to ask for a bond of a couple million dollars. There's no will, you know, we're not going to just let you do things and, and there's not going to be anybody accountable. Um, so that, you know, it's a, it, somebody has to make that decision and it's a substantive decision case by case. An individual uh, administrator executor who doesn't have the capacity to get a bond, maybe they have, you know, uh, dad dies and the child has bad credit or whatever financial problems. Um, does that does that property then go to sale and the court has to approve it is there a formal process for that or how does that happen there are you can petition the court and 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 you know extraordinary circumstances you can request you know relief based on like you said look i got the situation the register is requiring a two million dollar bond i don't got it but there's a property there's all these other things and then they'll admit it they'll be it'd be a court overseeing administration so the court will oversee the administration okay we, we understand you can't post a bond we will you know three months later is the next court date come back and we'll see how you what you have done so far right like you have to get released for you would, the judge would give you permission to administer the state without the bond and in exchange for that you have to then come back to the court date you have to participate in their their overseeing process and what is it, can you describe the overseeing process? What does that look like in, in California? We really, the only thing you do is when you you uh, want to sell property, you have to publish. Once you publish the sale, then you accept an offer, then you follow the court to have the court approve that sale, and then come to court and other people can overbid if they think that the, it's being uh, sold too low. It's an overbid process. Do you have something similar to that in Philadelphia? Yeah, in order for you have to, for a petition for the approval a sale of real estate, you have to have. Um, the independent, two independent appraisals or or affidavits of, of value for that, like, you know, saying that this house is worth this much. You So they're real estate professionals, people with licenses who are in the industry will sign a statement saying that they, I personally am aware or know this property and, and I can attest that, you know, it, the $300,000 it's selling for is market or what, you know, reasonable for what you would get in the area for this price. So then you would file that petition, a judge would go through it to, you know, look at what you filed, make sure it all makes sense, and then either approve or 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 delay or deny the request. Well, very different, very extreme like a pretty California, we have a very cumbersome process for those. It's a, it's a whole different thing. So in the course of your business, do you come across real estate investors and real estate agents? Who are involved in matters in the orphans court and you know how would you describe the ones that are effective and most professional uh that you might encourage people to to learn from what would you say are, are common characteristics of those people documentation right people who document are, are and are are very good record keeping um is is it's, it's lights out right everything that you do you should document it i i you can't do you can't have too much information, right? You can have too little information, but you can't have too much information. What I mean by that is, if you're gonna change the locks on the on the property, if you're gonna get the locks changed, right? You know, document who the lock, the locksmith company was, the time they came, the time they did the, right? You know, it was X, Y, and Z locksmith came, they came February 28th, you're right, it cost $76, right? Joe, Joe Locksmith was the person who did it, right? That is, it, it, it's an, you can, the really good ones, the good real estate agents, the people who participate in this process are the ones who keep meticulous notes and records and provide evidence when the people who need it 
can can readily access it. If I'm as an attorney handling a case and I and I want to get a petition to approve the sale of real estate and I'm jamming in all of this information, the judge on the other side sees that I've you know operated in good faith. I've tried to act in good faith and and I think those go those behaviors and actions go a long way when you can document and show that you know I, I've hired cleaners and and I even you know called or consulted with three four of them to get to make sure I was getting the best price that I wasn't spending somebody else's money frivolously those are the the individuals I think that excel and other attorneys seek out and try to partner with because they know they're going to get their their a good service from them you know, and I think that something I learned, my father was an attorney and I used to clerk when I was in high school and college, uh, kind of part time for them. And what I learned was that attorneys check out other attorneys filings to learn because it's public, right? You file something, it's not copyrighted and it's the opposite, it's public information. And so if somebody has a practice of listing off 10 or 20 things. So when I started in probate real estate, I would watch the filings and see what, what the best attorneys were doing and say, oh, wow, they copy they made notes of all the things they did on the property. They had a checklist. Well, I have all that in my system. I can just print out that report and attach it. And I think, um, you know, when a judge sees that you're meticulous and that you are conscientious, they're going to kind of look for something else. And I can tell you, I'm sure you, you know, tell me this is your experience. When the judge discovers one thing done wrong, they pull out their pencil, sharpen it, and look for something else. Because they figure if you did that wrong, if you're a little sloppy there, there's probably something else here that I'm missing I need to pay attention to. You are absolutely correct. And, I, and that was another thing I learned very on in my career. And I would, everyone else, I would recommend you. If you, if pay special attention to the first couple pages of anything that you file or do, there you um, go. The, the, those, right? If, make sure those are pristine because then you get the benefit of the doubt later on, right? If if I'm reading something and in the first page is a typo, like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my glasses on, I'm strapping in because there's going to, you know, I know that this was sloppily done, right? And it's not to say that we all don't make errors or mistakes, but one of the things that really good lawyers do is that our mistakes come at the end after you've read 10 pages of of pristine stuff you know it's funny you say i i had a disagreement with a paralegal the other day on an in california with a form called a notice of proposed action so on a full authority when you want to sell the property uh you have to give notice to all anybody who gets noticed that uh, and i did a video on this on my youtube channel today if you're interested you have to put on there you know we sold the property for this amount to this party these are the terms you know the basic issues so the form has a box where you could type in three or four lines of information, but I noticed the best attorneys always put C attached and have a C attachment A or attachment paragraph A, and they attach a lot of information, but on the front page, all you see is C attachment A. It just looks neat, clean, concise. To your point, just to start getting into the detail, I have to go to page three or four, I'm less likely to tear it apart versus if, if I'm page one, I have a four paragraph line and there's one typo. Well, now, what else, like you say, what else is wrong? So I, I would agree from a style point of view, and that's just human nature. Um, uh, that was what I noticed in judges that put stuff at the end as much as you can, put a C attachment and attach it. And it just looks a little more official than putting it all, trying to squeeze the stuff in the form even when you're able to. Yeah. So so um, now in nowadays in your current business, you're, you're, I guess, more clearly focused on the avoiding probate through estate planning part than you are on the probate. We didn't plan, now, now we go to court kind of thing. Yeah, and, it, and it's a really interesting position to be in because having spent so much time in the court, I love probate. 
right? Like I feel like, and it, no, and and the rest of America and the world is like, we all everybody's like, ah, probate's the worst. We got to avoid this. And I'm like, no, nah, probate is great, right? Like I just, I, I, I just view it differently. And and I get that a lot of people, it's a tough time. Someone's passed away. You have it's a lot of papers and filings, right? But from my perspective, you get to kind of dive into somebody's life, right? A little bit. You get to see how your loved one or, or the person that you're handling with how they lived, what they did. You get to look through their files, right? And not just like doing it, you know, sir, typically, but you get to do it with court approval and, and by the as the appointed administrator, it's your duty to, you know, marshal the assets and to and, and to administer their estate. And there's, I don't know, I I I would be proud to administer my parents' estate, right? To to settle and wind down their affairs. So it's just an interesting, um, but you are right though. My in my I and a lot of other attorneys are advocating a lot of these processes to avoid probate by any means necessary or limit the impact that probate has. Because I know in California, there's something called the Hegstead petition, which is kind of like a, uh, oh, it's a de minimis estate. There's not a lot going on. We could wrap this up in with a tiny little bow in one little court order. It, it, it ends the entire administration of a decedent's estate. Well, not to argue, but I believe a hex it specifically is, it should have been in the trust. It was the intention to be in the trust, but it was left out. Yeah, it's a little more than a limited estate. It's, the, it's that one question, can we treat it as though it was in the state or not? And then if you can, now the, 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 the trust documents are in effect, and if not, and this is so common for everybody on the call, every real estate agent, it's so common. I, I have a lead right now I'm working on where I sent the documents to the attorney and he kind of freaked out when I showed it to him because the, the this person set up a very expensive trust. They had a very expensive trust attorney who did all, all kinds of documents and minimal other trusts and different family members, but she refinanced her house and she did it out of the trust. And then she did it back in, but it wasn't insured. Meaning the pro, the challenge that we did out is you did it back in. Well, now you the title company is going to say, well, that's nice, but and you did it, but how do we know that deed is legitimate? We want to take a look at those documents and go into detail. And so it, it's one of those things where I, I always say, you can deed whatever you want. It doesn't mean the top company is going to accept it, you know, and it doesn't mean they're going to insure it. You might go to court and get a judge to say you're right. But who wants to go to court and have a judge say you're right when you have a document? If you just did it properly, then you would you would not have that question. So um, uh, definitely deeding property in and out. Uh, giving the customer the reminder to get them deeded in the property to avoid the Hexted petition, particularly in real estate, is something that we should all, as real estate agents, be very familiar with, particularly California. California gives you a free pass, kind of. Like, if you forgot to put it back, the Hexted petition is, oh, we forgot, can we put it back in? Most states don't allow that. Do you uh, have something similar in Pennsylvania? No. Most, I haven't heard of any state that allows it in California. It, it, we Again, so there's the Declaratory Judgments Act. So judges have wide um, ability to do things like they can, you know, their authority is extensive and expansive, right? So I work for, uh, I worked for in probate court, and we put people in prison, like, you know, for contempt of court, warrants were issued, people were put in prison on the judge's order, right? Like a completely different um, area than criminal law, but because they, they were in con contempt of court, and they, they, that is a, a crime, they were imprisoned, right? And, and I only bring that to say that, the judges could reform trust. They can put things in trust, put things out of trust. But how you had a case that determined the ability to do that, the Hegstead case was the case that allowed that to do that. Our jurisprudence or our law hasn't developed that kind of system that came out of a case. There was a case that 
created this avenue and this thing that you can now do. Whereas in here in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, you would have to, it's like a one-off. You would come and ask the judge for their, to use their discretion and their broad right. powers to do right. the thing that you want them to do. Right. And, and I think the thing I try to tell people is a judge can pretty much do whatever they want. That doesn't mean they won't get it returned. Doesn't mean that, that you can't appeal and win or force him to change his mind. But 99% of the time, the judge can pretty much do, and people say, well, will the judge approve this? Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so, we're going to find out together. Exactly. And I was going to say, is that your experience? Or do you? There must have been times that you're in court or hear decisions, like you don't know which way it's going to go either. Like you see, or, you know, are you, you, routinely he allows it and the next day he doesn't, or he routinely, she routinely doesn't allow that. And all of a sudden, allow, I mean, what's up with that? They're human beings, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And um, even as a practicing attorney, multiple times, like I would spend hours on something. I'm like, I know I got this right. I'm 100% like I every and then there's something that I, I overlooked or missed thought and I like, yep, oh, it was wrong. Or in the other way, sometimes I'll file something and I had no faith that I that I was gonna like, it's like, this is a toss up and go either way. And then it goes in my favor. And I'm like, okay, well, yep, there it was. Um, so it, you we are all we all serve at the mercy and there is no um, that it's a fool's errand trying to assume you know what the judge is going to do. Yeah, and I think for again for real estate investors and, and real estate agents like me, when people go to court for hearings to get approval, you cannot assume it's going to be approved. There, you just don't know until it's done, and that's why it's so dramatic. That's why it's so powerful. It's why I love this game because I want all the odds in my favor to get my customers' documents approved or pleadings approved because. If the judge goes, well, I don't like this. Let's come back in 60 days, 90 days, like 90 days till you get the property. The buyer is going to walk and who knows what happens to interest rates and COVID happened that way where I had a bunch of pending escrows and COVID shows up. So uh, if you were, if you were continued in that time period, it cost you a lot of money depending on who you were. The deals canceled, people lost money and such. Um, so, so uh, what would your advice be for a real estate agent who wanted to uh, find a way to, not you personally, but, you know, talk about the Andres of the world, want to get relationships where they can uh, uh, get involved in the business of selling the real estate on behalf of their clients. What, what business advice would you give them to earn the way to get that business? So the, I hate it's, it sounds the networking component is, is interesting, but like you got to be creative with the networking. One of the things that we do here in Pennsylvania is uh, tax auctions um, for these some of these a lot of these estates the their properties are sold at tax sales um and going to those and there's a lot of attorneys in at those at those tax sales right going to those those sales and and, and um you know seeing the process learning how it works um participating and being knowledgeable about it um offering to help out attorneys with like if you're at that tax sale and you see an attorneys having a hard time with with this matter, he doesn't quite get it or doesn't know it, you know, offering your services. Oh, we can see, we can list the property for you. Um, so being available, networking, um, those are those are some of the things that I can't really, it's tough. I don't like networking is, is the big one. You have to, you have to find those relationships and you have to be creative about about the ways that you find and make those relationships. And since you tax sales, literally uh, last week ago today, I was at the LA County Real Estate Investors Association and one of the best probate attorneys, in my opinion, in, in LA was there, not as an attorney. He was there because a speaker was going to talk about tax sales and he wanted to learn more. And he had started in that, was dabbling in it. And separate from his practice, kind of his investing money, wanted to use his 
legal skills in learn tax sales. And turned out I knew the guy that was the speaker. I knew somebody else he was working with. I have a friend who's in the same group with him. So it does a great way to network. In Philadelphia, where do people, how would somebody network with attorneys in the probate or the orphans court? Um, bar association events or the fiduciary associations? What are the best ways to meet people there? There's something called the Estate Planning Council. Um, it's actually, it's uh, national. Um, so the Estate Planning Council is one of, you can be, join and be a member of that. Uh, they have events um, that I would you recommend that people go to. It's one of the, you know, um, I think good, like all everybody there is for the same reason, the same purpose. They're all uh, estate planning individuals. So they have a national group called the council and every annually or biannually, there's a, a giant event held down in, in Florida. Um, so that would be one of my recommendations is, is joining your like, this is the estate planning council, your state's version of that. So they have that here in LA and I know they also have it in uh, Long Beach in particular. And then you mentioned, I think it was Orlando, it was just a couple of months ago that uh, they have, I think in May or April of a year, big event, a state national state planning uh, council. And I know a lot of the national vendors go there as well. Um, uh, so good. Okay, good. Hey, other questions. If you're watching online, we, we have the streamed on YouTube, Facebook, feel free to put questions in the chat and I'll be more, and I'll get to them uh, for you as well. And if, of course, you're watching the Zoom, raise your hand, put a question in the chat box, I'll call you in. I I, I enjoy my time with Andre, so I'm sorry I kind of got a little caught up here. Um, uh, do you recommend any particular book to read for investors or real estate agents? Are you involved? Do you do any real estate investing yourself? No, but I I have I have um, been to a couple closings, um, participated in, in some, uh, of the review process, making sure title chain of title is, is one of the learning title is, is an invaluable skill because so often more than not people overlook making sure the chain of title and, and title is correct. Um, uh, deeds are, deeds are public information. You can go down to your recorder of deeds office, pay a couple dollars and, and start and, and looking back into how property was titled and making sure it was titled correctly because there are um, tangled title in, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia specifically, it's one of the biggest and, 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 and hardest issues is tangled title and getting people to untangle those titles. Uh, it is, it's an invaluable skill and, and I don't know any book particularly that can teach you it, but I would devote a lot of time in that particular area because if you can become a skilled at, at learning to identify issues with title and can save people the headache of, of going to getting ready to close and all of a sudden it's like wait a minute there's an issue with this title it was trust it was deeded to this person but we don't want, there's a missing deed somewhere in the middle um if you could be that person that saves everyone time energy and effort because you know title you'll be a hero so a couple of tips i'm always looking uh, i do have a title representative work with i've changed companies here recently and um I'm, if, if you're a title rep I'm, i'd love to talk to you about that but i one thing i know is as soon as they get a listing i order the prelim right away and take a look at it because oftentimes it's a missing deed and you want to get started on that earlier rather than later or or get the court to address it earlier rather than later so uh, i always tell people your title problem you know, your title is a problem, probate is a solution. So if you have an issue, bring it to me and I'll try to help you solve the problem. Um, also, here's another thing too. This is this is one another one of those like tidbits or things that I can, the people really understanding the difference between legal title and equitable title. 
um, legal title is the perfection of a recording a deed, having um, legal title to the property. So if someone passed away and they left the property to someone else by will 30 years ago, um, and that person that passed away still is the legal title owner, but the person they left it to is the equitable owner, meaning the person who owns it in equity. Um, so really understanding that there's a difference between owning something in equity, meaning that I have a right to this thing versus I have perfected my legal title to the thing. If you can really un like separate those two things in your head, it will make moving and understanding the real estate aspect. It will you pay dividends if you can really understand those two concepts. I have a case right now, uh, a, a listing where uh, um, mom and dad, dad had a child from another marriage uh, and in, intended apparently, or at least said verbally, he wanted to disinherit her and wanted everything to go to the daughter from his second marriage, but he never put that in writing. Yeah, so even though uh, he passes away, uh, and then later the mother passes away, but I guess when he passes away at that moment, his heir in California, at least half that goes to the daughter from the prior marriage. And so even though the mother had a will and she wanted everything to go, she didn't. And you might have said, well, she's the wife. She inherits. Well, not in California, the way the law is set up. Uh, and, and had she right away, perhaps had a, uh, had a trust, had him write a will, had probated it, took the full title. Uh, then she would be able to do what she wants with it. But as a result, half of it goes to the other daughter. And they and it, it just creates strife and legal fees. And unfortunately, it doesn't work out for anybody's benefit. Um, do you, I don't think you do currently probate administration. Your current job, you're doing more uh, legal. In-house counsel stuff. I'm in-house counsel. In-house counsel. So, and I know you've you've done some uh, private practice are you done with that or you is that tabled for now or i mean it's never it's never tabled like you know what i mean i just the other day i, I did a a will clinic will for heroes clinic the other day for philadelphia vip uh it's a non-profit thing so just the other day i was sitting down writing wills for people for free right you know that's you know it was it's it's never done what are things that you that a a more common uh probate attorney does or maybe you do that somebody outside can assist you with. So for example, as a real estate agent, I'll go to attorney and say, listen, you, you have a estate, you have a car you need to sell. I can help you with the junking of the cars. You have junk out services, cleaning services, antiques. What are some of the things that most commonly you come across or, or seen come across? In the administration process, the junking out is a big one, right? The cleaning out of properties um, are are a, a big, big one that you know I charge two fifty, three hundred an hour. If I'm doing administration, right, me showing up to clean out a property, it's going to cost a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars for three hours to clean out a property to make sure that it is prepared for um, to be listed for sale. That that the house it can be appraised because there's not a whole bunch of junk stopping the appraiser from getting to interesting or or necessary components in the house um right. so that is right having the attorney participate and do that is not cost effective right having a real estate agent having someone else participate that i can hire you know at a more costly cost effective rate to effectuate the junk out of properties um also parking and and, and having sometimes cars need to be put places right you, you know there's garages and you can pay those fees but you know having access or, or knowing those connections and networks to house things is also a, a very important administrative task that I frequently find myself Googling, you know, where's the best like storage unit for this, you know, in this area, so to speak. So that is a, a, another thing I find for from an administrative area task point 
um, appraisal, appraising items, right? So connecting, if you ever have jewelry or artwork or specific items and knowing that I having connections and connectors to people who can value items for you, you know, rather than trying to figure it out yourself. A lot of this is D, D, like DYI, do it yourself. I gotta, you know, in an administration, when doing administration, it I have to make sure that I'm getting full value for the beneficiaries. And that can be, a, if I'm, I have no idea about paintings, right? Like I'm not an art expert. I don't know that this painting is worth $5,000. So if I try to sell it at a garage sale for $50, I'm doing my clients a disservice. So, you know, growing your network, making sure you have a, a vast array of individuals with different skill sets around you. Um, do you ever get involved in errors research? At some point in California, you have to make a good faith effort to look for errors. We didn't find any others. Um, in certain more complicated cases, do you ever get involved with vendors that do air research? Is that a, a service yeah. you can involved with? So in Pennsylvania, you have to do a good faith um, investigation as well. And, and ours is, you know, a really do a good faith investigation. So um, private investigators are, are a, a report from a licensed private investigator goes a long way in the, in the, in the Pennsylvania court system, right? Um, so making also making sure you're, you uh, know some PIs, right? Like, or, or if you are a PI, right? Connecting with attorneys that do probate would be a good idea because, you know, occasionally we're like, like you said, an air search needs to be done or we need to demonstrate a good faith effort, which isn't just a Google Lexus Nexus search, right? I have to hire a private investigator to to do their thing, right? <laughs> you know, um, so yes, I do get involved with it and knowing a good like i know i know one really good private investigator expensive but like if i if, if it's a big enough case and i know i need to track somebody down i'm hiring them they're getting my money right um i know in some jurisdictions they do require like one or two websites that you check you made a, they call that good faith other others you know it's the discretion of the judge you write out what you did and the judge looks at that and says sounds reasonable or not reasonable and again that gets down to your personal relationship have you ever used a service where they charge a contingency fee to find errors i have not i didn't even know that was a thing like if they don't find anybody you get your money back you don't put up any money at all like they they'll, they'll sign up the air and charge them 15 20 percent and and they'll say they'll call you up and say hey we have this estate that you might not be aware of it turns out you might be an heir in the neighborhood of fifty to hundred thousand dollars if you're interested we can put it together for it we charge whatever the percentage is and then they file of uh, they get a document to get a percentage uh, of that uh, estate so that that's that the thing um you can pay people you're friend Bill, you're teaching me something, something this is a, I love the reciprocal nature of this relationship because I'm learning something new now well, as different markets are different, I notice, and some attorneys think that's um, predatory, you know, uh, 15, 20% sounds like a lot. On the other hand, if you called me and told me that I have a million dollars, you know, coming from some long loss that I was aware of, fine, take 20%. Thank you. I'll pay 25%. I pay referral fees 25% in real estate. So 20% uh, fee for me would be uh, uh, well worth it. So it's just different. Yeah. Um, again, one of the our one of the things that hamstrings attorneys is that one of the rules, our ethical rules, is we have to charge what's considered a reasonable attorney's fee. And um, you know, and especially in the probate world, that that can be that differs, right? So in, in administration, one of the windfalls people think that attorneys get is that they they can get a percentage of the estate that they administer. So like for instance, I love using this example. Prince passed away in testate, right? He died without a will. Somebody inherit some, you know, went in. I think it was Minnesota was the the, the jurisdiction that had um, control that appointed a, a conservator or somebody to manage his his estate. 
120 people filed petitions saying they were related to Prince and you know we're looking for for part of that estate um and they had their handout so to speak and and that person out you know it's it's hard to to do it's not easy yeah to determine who's who a famous I mean, a lot of those uh, famous cases Howard Hughes is another famous case where you had uh, hundreds of uh, people who were he didn't have any children didn't have any I don't think siblings that had children and so you had hundreds of cousins and second cousins and third cousins and you know uh, in old times I don't think the the records were as, as clear as they are today and so figuring out who's who's legitimate who's not legitimate and then taking the assets and dividing up 300 ways and then people complain oh you sold that one too cheap that one more it just takes a few uh a uh, few attorneys in that list to object to things, the whole thing becomes very unruly. But, but that conservator, that one of the, in, in you could have charged a percentage of the estate as right. your reasonable attorney's fee. Right. But again, if you're in that print situation, you have 130 applications, you got to try to figure out like, you know, maybe he earned his keep, so to speak, right? Like if he did right. charge that percentage, right. like think about the amount of work that, that went into that, like if a small law firm would have to handle that one case by itself, right? right. You know, but think about that on that scale, but that is something um, I learned early on. Another thing that attracted me into this area of the law, you can charge, a, a, all, all you need is one, right? I could get one estate, charge 2% of a, a $10 million estate, $200,000, that's that's my whole year. The the uh, California, we have a statutory limit on the fees. You can charge less, we can't charge more than for the standard administration as an attorney and for to be the administrator or fiduciary those are capped now there's extraordinary uh, fees and costs that you can add on to but you have to document them you need the judge to approve them and man i've seen judges and attorneys go after each other and it's like three thousand well approve three thousand two hundred and sixteen dollars and eighteen cents like it, it's tough you don't you really don't want to have to go to the judge and ask for money i just don't think i don't think it's becoming i don't think that's really where you want to be um yeah uh, and in uh, Jack talks about Jack Roby, uh, who had to sell, he was the owner of the Miami Dolphins and famously died in test state in Florida, family had to, had to sell the team. Very common that people have to sell uh, large assets, companies, farms, post-sports teams. In California, we had the O'Malley family sell the Dodgers because, you know, if you have multiple heirs, there's no way to give them all a piece of the Dodgers and run the organization. So they had to sell it and cash it out to cash people out. So another good reason to set up proper estate planning so you can find ways with insurance and such to, to manage those affairs. Are you involved in the setup? Are you more are you more now in your current job? I think the company is EP Wealth. Yeah. Let's get a plug in for them. So in your current job, are the customers coming to you already with a plan or are you advise are you referring them to a plan or are you actually preparing plans for people? Um, we're not, we aren't, we aren't, uh, we do not provide legal services. They go out for, you know, we aren't, we don't, um, charge, it's not a law firm. Um, it is, a investment, you know, kind of administration. It's RIA does not, we aren't a law firm in, in that, uh, component. So, so we they have not, I'm not like doing it as my day job, um, drafting being, I'm not a drafting attorney. But I'm sure you have a, along the way, they have a client who wants to deposit money with them and invest money with them and and they bring you the trust documents. Somebody might look at them and say, uh, it might be time to rewrite something or how does that work? So, something to that effect. Um, yeah, yeah. So you need a Rolodex of, of estate planning attorneys, I would think. Good ones. Yes. Good one, really good ones. Yeah, yeah. I, but but my from my time in Orphan's Court in Pennsylvania, I uh I got the cut of a lot of people here jib, so to speak. Like I've seen 
Um, the, the, the bar is really actually kind of small. Um, the estate, typically the estate bars are pretty small. It, it isn't, they're not, like you said, the amount of practitioners, 250, it's not a lot of attorneys, right? We, you know, they tend to all know each other. It's a very insular group um, and breaking in, that could be hard, but it is, it's not, you know, the known, it's a known quantity. The people who work in this field are known quantities, I think. Wow. Okay, so um, um, no, Jack, you're not locked off. I turned for security, I turned the video off. You can start your video now if you need to. Uh, Jack Lapidus is one of our favorite attorneys. And um, I had turned off the video because we had a little problem with somebody there, but security saying we turn back on. But we're gonna wrap up here. You know, Andre, I, this is our second time on the show and I've also interviewed you uh, uh, offline as well. I just find you just incredible fountain of information. I really appreciate your time. I wish you the best of luck. Uh, you're currently in-house counsel for EP Wealth, which is a wealth management company based in California National. If somebody wanted to get in touch with your firm about bringing you millions of dollars to invest on behalf of... Um, well, I'm here as an individual, right? Like I came, you know, this is because of my love of probate from me enjoying in, in, in our conversations. It's not for the plug or for the business. It's not, not saying that's not great and that you can't choose to go there, but I enjoy, I think you provide a service to the public. And that is Thanks. why I want to participate because one of the mandates and things that we have to do as attorneys is, is educate the public, try to be good servants and, and make sure people are make are informed you know that is informed consent is one of our big things so i participate and spend my time freely with you because i think you provide a service to the public and that's oh. why I, I do this with you well i really appreciate it. i i just learned so much and again for everybody listening you may not ever practice in uh real estate or invest in uh state of pennsylvania or philadelphia more particularly but i think the principles are the same you can see his passion for it i think that's common amongst the best practitioners you can see the value of repetition and experience. Uh, and um, while he's, I think, self-deprecating that he's not special, he's very special, but his experience, even if you were not smart, the experience of being in the court, seeing these things over and over again, and having the personal relationship with the judges. And that's why I tell everybody in this area, learn your local county, go to court. When you have that opportunity to get in front of a judge, go, be, learn the right way to do it. Go in for that, just learn how they operate, learn how the trainers work with them. I just think it's very valuable uh, if you want to be a professionalist business. So I encourage you. Andre, thank you so much for your support. I appreciate you so much. Continued success. And we'll have you back next year. We'll get your latest update, hopefully, on your, your career. And uh, more importantly, updates you have for us on being better in our practice. So thank you so much. All right, Bill. You have a lovely day. And for the rest of you, again, uh, thank you for joining us in um, Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. You can register, come in live on the Zoom call, usually with people want to participate. This was a little different topic than we normally do, but I thought it was, you know, I learned a ton. hope you did too. Uh, if you want to see past episodes, you go to episodes.probateweekly.com, and that takes you to my YouTube channel and past episodes. If you want to reach out to me personally, I'm at Bill Gross EXP in social media. Call, text, or email me. Uh, we also have a Facebook group for anybody who comes on this program is interested in continuing the conversation. Go to Facebook. We have a group called Probate Weekly. We have, let me see if I can share the screen here. Uh, we have over 2,700, last I checked, uh, members, 2,700 members in the group. And we post content, ask questions, look for referrals. Love to have you participate there and see you regularly here. Uh, if you like this, please like it, subscribe, come back again. If I can help you, thank you so much. Make today your best day ever. Thank you, everybody.